Hey, I want to ask a question as we start this morning. Um, I don't know if you ever feel like this. You feel like uh, you try and you try. You work and you work. You strain and you strain to change and it doesn't happen. You struggle with the same things over and over and over again. And we wonder sometimes we say, you know, maybe I'm not a recipient of God's grace. Maybe I'm not a recipient of God's mercy. But this morning I want to look at an instance of, of a man who felt that same tension, who knew the promises of God, and yet sometimes succeeded and sometimes failed in clinging to those promises. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like you're just straining and striving to do what's right? and yet you continually are failing. This morning, I think there's, there's grace for us. And I hope that this morning we might just open up the book of God's word and hear of God's amazing grace to sinners. So here's our big idea. God is even faithful to those who falter in faith. God is even faithful to those who falter in faith. And we're going to see this in the life of Abraham because Abraham's going to receive, or Abram, excuse me, is going to receive a promise that Brian just read in verses one through three. And then he's going to succeed in verses four through nine. We're going to see that Abram acts on his belief in God's promise in verses four through nine. And then immediately following in verses 10 through 20, he's going to act in disbelief. Abraham's going to live in this rich faith in verses four through nine. And then immediately following that, he's going to fall and fail. And I hope that this morning we might find grace in our time of need. I want to pray one more time that God uses our time here this morning to exalt his name. Lord, we pray that you would allow us to hear of your grace and your mercy. Lord, we pray that you might bring comfort to weary sinners, that you might bring conviction to those who are in rebellion to you, that you might honor your name as we hear from you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's dig in in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, what happens here in verses 1 through 3 is that God promises blessing to Abram, and it's not lacking any kind of just grandiosity, is it? This massive promise that is brought to Abram. One of the commentators I love reading is, is named Dale Ralph Davis, and he summarizes uh, this promise in four different P's, right? He says, first, God promises Abram a people. He says in verse two, I will make you a great nation. We saw last week that, that God had created the nations, that he dispersed the nations at the Tower of Babel, and now he's spreading the nations around the globe to fill the earth as God had commanded, and now God promises that Abraham would become a great nation amongst all of those other nations. 
And so God is going to give Abram this prodigy, this uh, progeny, excuse me, this, uh, this group of people coming from him, children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren that will become a great nation. But not just people, he also promises him a place. This is what he says in verse 1. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And then again, this is reiterated in verse seven when he takes him to Canaan and he shows him the land and God says, I'm going to give to your children, to your offspring, this land, this Canaan. So there's people and there's place. And then verse three, there's protection. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. See, God promises this protection to Abram. Right, uh, Abram's a person in a foreign land. He has uh, no family, like extended family. It's just he and his little entourage, his wife and his, his nephew there. And sure, sure enough, God is promising to be that protection for him. And then finally, it's, it's people, place, protection. And then there's finally a program in, in verse three. Look at what he says. I will, uh, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God has a program to bless all of the families of the earth through the channel that is Abram. And he's kind of hidden this even in verse two. He says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you, excuse me, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. See, just like we saw last week, God is promising to bless the world through Abram. But let's be honest here for a second. Abram is one guy, childless, with a barren wife, in a foreign land, with no home. He's the least likely candidate for all of these promises to be true for, right? Uh, Abram has no kids, so he's supposed to be a great nation. He has a barren wife. He's going to become a great nation, Uh the, the man who wanders away from his people's homeland will become the owner of this land, Canaan? Uh, this roving band of, of three, Abram, Lot, and Sarah, are going to be protected? How, how is all of this going to work? And in the end, it highlights the fact that God didn't choose Abram based upon his resume. God didn't choose Abram according to the person that was easiest or simplest to get to the place where he wanted him to be. Now, God chose the one who was furthest from those things. Just like Paul says, uh, God shows his perfect patience in me, this sinner, the foremost of sinners. Now God chooses Abram, the furthest away from his promise. See, it's a reminder to us that God's promise is enough, isn't it? God's promise is enough. We've seen that God's word is powerful to create. Remember back in Genesis 1, when God created the world with words, with strong and powerful words. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He said, let there be an expanse, and there was an expanse. And all of a sudden, God is kind of conquering the chaos and disorder of the original creation with his words. And Paul tells us that he's spoken life into our hearts. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, God who said, light shall shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It was God's word in Ezekiel 37 that 
raised up the dry bones in the valley of dry bones. As, as Ezekiel, the prophet, prophesies God's word and the bones start to raise up and take on flesh. It was God's word, according to James chapter 1, that brought us forth by the word of truth. It is God's promise that creates his people. And Abram is exhibit A in this whole argument, right? See, God's promise is enough for us. If God's word is powerful and God's word expresses the goodness of his intentions, then what else do we need? If we have God's word and we know that God is good, what else are we lacking? But now what's going to happen is that Abram's going to be brought into the lab, so to speak. These promises are going to be road tested with Abram, right? He's going to, God's going to move Abram into these circumstances to kind of test exactly how much he trusts in these particular promises. And so we want to move forward into verses 4 through 9, and we want to see that Abram acts on his belief in God's promise. And we, we really uh, we see a success story here for Abram. Look with me at verses 4 through 9 of chapter 12. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they, they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed by or Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord God and called upon the name of the Lord, and Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. See, Abraham leaves, and in verses 4 through 6, we really see this emphasized. I mean, consider how many different words are used to kind of describe as synonyms of, of the word go. Right? There's the word went in verse 4, departed in verse 4, set out, go in verse 5. All of these synonyms to describe that they're leaving uh, Abram's homeland. They're leaving the place where Abram's father is buried, and they're going to a distant land. Abraham kind of takes his posse with him, right? It's Abram and Sarai, it's Lot, it's all of their servants, and they set out to go. And the first pit stop that they make is at this place called the Oak of Moreh, right? The Oak of Moreh. And verse 6 makes specific mention that he stopped at this particular tree in this particular spot. And you're saying, why in the world is that being mentioned? And that's a very good question. See, this is probably, um, uh, would have been known to the readers of, of Moses that, that he was writing to. They would have been familiar with this particular tree. And probably what this was, was this is kind of like a, uh, a religious cult spot uh, that they, that travelers and other people would stop at this spot and they would kind of ask of this particular tree. In fact, it could be translated as the diviner's oak. Uh, it had some religious significance, some cultic significance, significance. And so Abram is stopping there and he's setting up a shrine to God. It's standing in opposition right where the cultic practice was that Abram is going to make a shrine, an altar to this 
God of Abram. And so in verses eight through nine, we see that Abram pitches his tent and builds an altar. See, in light of God's promise, Abraham builds an altar to God and it stands in contrast to the tent that he chooses to live in. I love this quotation from Gordon Wenham when he says this. He says, the only relics that Abram left behind him were altars to God, no relics of his own wealth. That Abram's not leaving anything behind him that would signify that he was present there. It was just these altars to God's goodness and his promise. See, what happens when we step back and look at this, we see that Abram hears God's promise and he responds in belief. He leaves his homeland. He builds this altar in the midst of this foreign uh, kind of worship spot. Our belief in God's promise leads us to obedience, right? Our, our belief in God's promise leads to our obedience. And not only is God's word powerful, it's powerful enough when, when God makes us promises to lead us into obedience, in light of God's promise, Abram moves. He leaves behind all security, all help. And the author of Hebrews really kind of highlights this. He says uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was, was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now notice in the midst of all of the author of Hebrews writing about Abraham, the thing that he says is most central to this is faith. He says, by faith. And he is continuing to return back to this theme throughout all of these Old Testament characters. He's highlighting the amazing things that they've done, but first the prerequisite of faith. Hebrews 11.6 says that if anyone would, would, uh, would follow God, he must believe that he exists and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Well, Abraham had faith. That is why he was able to live this pattern of obedience. See, sometimes what we try to do is we try to live in obedience apart from faith. What we try to do is we try to say, I'm going to live in obedience in order to prove myself worthy to God. And then we fail mightily, don't we? What we want to do is that we want to live in, in the process of faith and say, I need God's goodness. I need God's promise so that I can obey. Well, good for us this morning. This isn't just a story of Abraham's successes. There's actually a story of Abraham's failures. In verses 10 through 20, we, we, we see the opposite, that Abram acts out of disbelief in verses 10 through 20. Let's look at verse 10 of Genesis chapter 12. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. Let's just stop there for a second. I just want to pause at verse 10. See, famine leads Abram to Egypt. In verse 10, we see that there's famine in the land. And it just so happens that Abram can't stay in the promised land very long. God is moving him into a new set of circumstances, even beyond the promise. And so Genesis is filled with these natural events, these, these uh, well, floods, uh, famines, 
barrenness for, for some of the women in Genesis. These natural events that, that push uh, the character's faith to the center of the table, right? It, it calls them to express the richness of their faith or to find grace in the absence of it. And so in verse 10, we find that, that God is kind of pushing Abram to this new environment wherein he's going to be called to express his faith. Now look at verse 11 with me. He said, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. See, what happens is that famine leads Abram to Egypt, but Egypt leaves Abram to fear. Uh, Egypt, the prospect of, of his wife being beautiful and him being in a foreign land, and it's just the two of them or the three of them, uh, it leads Abram to be afraid that, that he is going to die for the sake of someone else taking Sarai. And so Abram's new circumstances lead him to fear, and his fear drives him to this plan, right? So, so what Abram's plan is to say, Sarai, lie. Well, it's not really a lie because technically we find out in Genesis 20, Abram and Sarai are actually brother and sister. They're stepbrother and sister, so it's not technically a lie, but it's still kind of a distortion of the truth, isn't it? And, and the thing about it is, is that it really puts Sarai at risk. Uh, it's interesting to note throughout history how many times uh, women and children are put at risk. Uh, and we, again, a situation like this, his fear drives him to a plan. And the idea is that Sarai is to tell everyone in Egypt that Abram is her brother. Now, before we get too judgmental about this, we want to stop and just consider, right, we've already highlighted, hey, they are actually brother and sister, stepbrother and sister. But secondly, Abraham's, uh, Abram's plan is probably more something like this. If we go into a foreign land and I claim to be her brother, any suitor that comes along to take Sarai as his wife has to get approval from me, the brother. And so Abram's kind of possibly thinking that this is the way things might go, uh, but it kind of falls apart really quickly if we look at verses 14 through 16. Look at verse 14 with me. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. See, what Abraham wasn't counting on was that Pharaoh would be the one to take Sarah, Sarai into his house, and that Pharaoh would take Sarai into his, his uh, harem. Sure enough, that's what happens. We need to pause and just consider this. God has promised to protect Abram, but he chose to lie about his wife. God has promised to make Abram a great nation, but now another man might be sleeping with her. God has promised to give Abram the land of Canaan, but he's left Canaan. And now he's getting rid quite comfortable with, with Pharaoh's blessing that he's receiving there in verse 16, right? And if things keep going this way, it might be said that, that Pharaoh was Abraham's benefactor, not God. And so the, the promise of verses 1 through 3 is at risk because of Abram's faithlessness. 
Abram's heart is indifferent to Sarai's trouble, indifferent to the promise of God, and pretty comfortable with getting rich from Pharaoh. It's as if all the promises of of chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, that Brian read for us have disappeared in Abram's mind. I don't know if you remember this from your high school literature class, but uh, if you read the, the Odyssey, at least I think it was the Odyssey. Odysseus and the Lotus Eaters is this story of Odysseus. They, they leave and they're trying to head home. And uh, one of the gods kind of blows them off course to this island of this people that eat this plant called the Lotus. And it's kind of like this apparently drug-like food that they eat. And sure enough, all of Odysseus's crew is kind of swept onto this island. They start eating this, this plant and they don't want to leave. Uh, it's almost so comfortable, so relaxed that they've forgotten all notion of where they were heading toward home. And Odysseus has to convince them to leave this place. See, Abram is content to stay in this place of privilege, even though his wife is at risk, even though the promises of God are forgotten. We recognize that we ourselves can grow comfortable in our sin and we can choose to stay where God would not have us, to, to stay in this faithless place. And so what happens in verses 17 through 20 is that God inserts himself and he afflicts Pharaoh and releases Sarai. Look with me at verse 17. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh, Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. See, what happens is that God intervenes. Look at verse 17. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh. Poor Pharaoh, right? Like throughout the Pentateuch, we find Pharaoh being the one who receives all of this hardship from God. But God intervenes and he afflicts Pharaoh with these plagues. It would seem to indicate that, that the Pharaoh and his household have some form of leprosy. And they're, they're seeing that. They're seeing this tie to Sarai's wife. And then he calls Abram into his presence and he rebukes him. But look at how the result of, of, of God's intervention in this. Abram goes home. Sarai leaves Egypt unmolested. Abram leaves richer than when he came. And Abram is not friends with the Egyptians any longer. And God has intervened and kept his promises secure. God preserved what he promised to Abraham is now still in place. And so there we have it, right? God gives these promises in 12, 1 through 3 to Abram. Abraham lives in response to those promises in 4 through 9, but then forgets those promises in 10 through 20. But we find God gracious to intervene to preserve his promise to his servant. We might step back and say, what's this mean for us? How does this have any bearing for us here this morning? See, the good news for us this morning is that our doubt of God's promise can be overcome by God's grace. Our doubt of God's promise can be overcome by God's grace. We tend to get gospel amnesia, don't we? We forget the promises of God and a lot of our actions are, are out of line with a trust in the gospel. You know, we think of the obvious things, the 
the affairs, the drug use, whatever else it might be, uh, those things are out of line with God's promise, no, no question. But there are individual actions throughout our day, the, the harsh word that we spoke to our children, the uh, reliance upon money or our 401k or whatever else it might be, those things also show our heart to not be in line with the promise of the gospel. And here's the thing is that we stand in a long line of people who have also not had full faith in the promises of God, right? Remember David uh, in his sin with Bathsheba, God had promised that, that, that he would use David uh, that he would establish David's line forever. And yet David sins with Bathsheba. Peter uh, has heard all of these promises from Jesus for three years. And then he even hears a prophecy from Jesus that before the rooster crows, that he would deny him three times. And, and yet that's exactly what Peter does. Uh, we see it in the life of Abram here that even though he, he has received the promise from God that God will protect him, that those who oppose him, God will oppose. And yet when he's in a foreign land in Egypt, he wants to have his wife lie. And if it weren't bad enough that he did it once, he's going to do it again in chapter 20. See, we stand in a long line of people who aren't really consistent in their trust in the promises of God. And while our belief in the promise of God may be very real, it's embedded in a sinful heart. God takes his good word and places it in the midst of our sinful humanity. And what it means is that sometimes we have these topsy-turvy outcomes. We, we might have a, a mountaintop faith experience followed by a valley of despair. We might be like Elijah at the uh, Mount Carmel opposing the idols of, or the, uh, the priests of Baal and then turn around and flee and despair of our life. See, at times, our sinful heart so asserts itself that, that we forget the promise of God and we act out of disbelief and faithlessness. But I want to just highlight this morning that the promise made to Abram is unconditional. It has no conditions. It's no strings attached. There's no fine print to God's promise to Abram, is there? There's no little covenant that he has to sign with the little tiny print at the bottom. No, Abram's promise that he receives from God it has no conditions to it. God calls him to obedience in verse 1 to leave the his land to go to this promised land, but it's not conditional as it's stated in the passage. You and I have also received an unconditional covenant from God. God's grace to us in Christ is also free. Just as God granted his promise to Abram without requirement, he also saves us. It's by grace we've been saved through faith and this not of ourselves. You and I are recipients of grace, not deserving uh, employees. That's the distinction that God makes in Romans chapter 4, that it, it's not like a wage that we earn. It's not like you go to work and you've worked so many hours and you get such and such a paycheck. It's, it's more like the, uh, the, the sweepstakes that you won where you haven't done anything. You are an undeserving recipient and God has blessed you despite yourself. See, the gospel this morning is for needy people. 
not needy in the sense that we have a drug problem or can't pay our mortgage or we, we've come to the end of ourselves. It's not like the WB kind of Christianity, if you know the network, where there's just always this crisis. No, the, the needy that we have uh, who are gospel needy are those who recognize their sinfulness. They realize that they've sinned against a righteous and holy God and that they need payment for their sins. That there's nothing they can do to get themselves on the right side of God's grace and mercy. That instead God has to extend that to them. Jesus came onto the scene and he made statements like this in Matthew 9. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There's a statement in, in Luke 18 when Jesus gives this story of, of a tax collector and a, a, a Pharisee. Uh, if you understand the, the background, the Pharisee would have been a very righteous, devout individual. He would have tried to, as hard as he could to keep the whole law. Whereas a tax collector was a turncoat. It was someone that was turning in his own people so that they... Um, would have to pay taxes to the Roman government. They were viewed as just the lowest of the low, the worst form of sinners. And so what happens in Luke 18 is this righteous Pharisee comes before God and he prays. He said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Do you, see, do you hear in his prayer how he is so consumed with his unrighteousness that it actually becomes a barrier between him and God? He is so convinced that he needs nothing before God that he actually ironically cannot come before God. And we contrast that with verse 13 of Luke 18 where the tax collector says these short words, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus highlights this and he says it's, it's the tax collector who went home justified or declared righteous with God. It's not the self-righteous Pharisee, it's the one who recognized his need of grace and mercy. See, the gospel is for needy sinners the gospel is for those who aren't self-righteous, but who recognize the wrongs of their own heart and need to find grace in their time of need. So I wonder this morning if we might ask a question. Do we really believe in grace? Do we really believe in God's grace coming to those who don't deserve mercy? Do we really believe that? Or alternatively, do we believe in second chances? Our culture is all about second chances, aren't they? they they're about uh, the, the idea that we would have another opportunity to prove ourselves worthy. And we think that God is on board with our, our logic of second chances. We think that God would be on board. He's, he's going to forgive that last wrong and he's going to give me one more opportunity to prove myself. And we want to just highlight this morning how that stands in opposition to the grace of God. Because the grace of God doesn't highlight, hey, I'm going to give you one more chance to prove yourself. The grace of God says, you will never prove yourself. And you need to be a recipient of mercy from God. 
This morning, as we look at the life of Abraham, we recognize he's not a recipient of second chances. He's a recipient of promise. And there's all the world of difference between those two things. If you go through your life just trying to prove yourself, I guarantee you're going to be frustrated and tired and exhausted. And what we need is we need for us, for ourselves as weary sinners to come before a righteous, gracious, promise-giving God and to know that he meets us in our sinfulness. See, while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's a statement from the book of Romans, chapter 5. And what it means is this, is that while we were still in our sinful humanity, God sent his own son to be born of a virgin. And we're familiar with that story. But he, he was born of a virgin and he lived a perfect, flawless life for 33 years and then was put to death. He died a sinner's death. He died with criminals and, and those that were truly lawbreakers when he himself had done nothing wrong. And that happened so that true lawbreakers like you and I might find grace in God's presence. Let me ask you, do you believe in God's grace or do you believe in second chances? There's all the world's difference between those two things. And I, I think as we, we, we opened up and we discussed what's it like for those to be those who fail, who falter, who, who never accomplish and never reach that perfection that we so long for. We recognize that there was one who lived perfectly for us. In fact, one of the hidden parts of this text in Genesis 12 verse 7 is later on it's going to be quoted in places like Galatians chapter 3 or in the book of Acts. And it's going to be a highlight of the sermon because it's not just that this promise was made to Abram. It was made to Abram's seed, singular. That's Jesus. That all of these promises that were given to Abram would actually be fulfilled as they're uh, given to the person, Jesus Christ. And so God is saying, hey, I'm going to give you a people. And he's actually giving that, uh, that nation to Jesus himself, the church. Uh, he, I'm going to give you, um, or I'm going to... Uh, bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Well, when we curse Christ, there's a judgment to be expected. When we uh, have faith in Christ, we receive blessing. Uh, there's a, all of these promises find their fulfillment in the person of Jesus. In, the nation, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Not all the nations are blessed through Abram, other than in his seed, Jesus Christ, so that now every tongue and tribe and nation will confess See, this morning we recognize that we are recipients of grace, recipients of mercy. I want to close with this quote from John Newton. John Newton says this, he says, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. Yet I can truly say I am not what I once was. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. So even though we might be frustrated with our lack of progress, we should see over years and, and decades of life and faith in Christ, we should see that God is changing us slowly. 
bit by bit. And even when we get frustrated and we say, I shouldn't have done that thing that was opposite of my faith that I claim in Jesus Christ, we find grace in our time of need and we recognize God's grace to be able to change us slowly over time. I pray that we might be a people who, by God's grace, by God's promise, are changed and renewed. Let me pray. Lord, we pray this this morning, that you would change us for your glory. Allow your promise to sink into us deeply. Remind us of your grace and your kindness to us so that we might be changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want to close with Jude 24. We close this way a lot, but I think it carries specific significance for us this morning. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the appearance or the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. See, he is capable of presenting us before his presence blameless. And surely he'll do that. I hope that we might grab onto the promises of God this week and cling to them in Christ. Have a great week.